morning, Francis. Uh, good being here. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, and welcome to all of our viewers around the world. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. Uh, my name is Don Taylor. I am the director of the STAN 21 Safety Foundation. And normally, uh, this week, we would be at PRI putting on a, uh, a safety seminar with guests like we have today, um, but we're not. And normally, uh, this year, which was not normal, we would have been at the uh, Long Beach Grand Prix. We would have put on seminars for uh, SCCA, for SCORE, off-road, for SCTA, and for the uh, vintage IndyCar groups, but we haven't. So it's a great pleasure for us to have this opportunity. And thank you, EPAR Trade, John, and uh, uh, helping us put together a program here where we can bring our speakers to racers. Uh, the foundation itself is about five, is now 10 years old, uh, started by Mr. Morzo, uh, wanting to give something back to the sport. And so uh, let's have Eve say good morning to us. Eve? Good morning. Take good over. Morning. Good morning. Good morning, yeah. Good morning from France to all of you. First excuse for my bad English. You know me very well, my English. I cannot improve more. I am with Roma, who is the Stand 21 Vice President, and he shows that Stand 21 is a family company. We all of us go through this crazy uh, 22 years due to this incredible COVID-19 uh, time. Speaking after Roger Pesky is an honor. Good job, Francisque, for Anipartrait, John, Julie, Paul, you, you make a great job. Good job. Merci, Don, for what you are in charge of the foundation and you organize very well the, what, you, what you're doing. Thank you to you. I will tell safety arrows on France, uh, Steve and mm. Terry, who came to my home in Burgundy, try, try my cellar. <laughs> and uh, to be a part of an Elbe Foundation Racing Go Safer and give your great experience in the community and can be for professional or gentleman driver. Don't forget the gentleman driver represents more than 90% of the 3 million competitors around the world. I'm sure you have seen yesterday the Roman Grosjean crash at the start of the barring. You know, Steve and Terry, you came through things like that a lot of time in your life. But it shows that racing is still dangerous. And it, what happened in 2020? But I accept at the top level of racing, like Formula One, IndyCar, NASCAR, Le Mans, yeah. NHRA, or IMSA, you never have the safety team like yesterday. I remember when I started my company in 1970, this sort of crash, crash was very frequent. We lost so many friends and drivers due to fire, aid injury, or other issues. That was my focus to create and put in a Stand 21 DNA, the philosophy to develop, manufacture, explain to our customer equipment developed with the feedback of the best worldwide driver. Don't forget, till 1986, it was no safety standard. The, the standard, it was my face. It was the contact I get with the, with the racers. And they were believing to the, we bring the safety, like Simpson in America. And because of that, we were uh, 
for this racer, we were like their hero because they were believing what we're doing. Our role is to take care of the driver from the, the feet to the FHR. FHR for you is Hans, and uh, we are one of the, the biggest Hans manufacturers. And we, are, we want manufacture everything in-house with the best safety standard. Terry, you came to my company and you have seen that. And come to, and to all of you, all American, please come to visit us in Burgundy, France. I will not open my solar to everybody, but uh, for, to some, yes. <laughs> I love America, you know that. I love your country. When I'm in California at the Stand 21 North America, I feel at home. I have so many friends from the racing community. We play golf. We already played together golf. Can be in your club or can be in my club, you know. And we can, I can ride my motorbike, my cars, and bring my kids, grandkids to my home and share good time together. Merci and be safe. Our next seminar, I hope, will be Long Beach Grand Prix with, uh, in April. We cross the finger. And thank you to, to you, my American friends. Okay, Eve, thank you very much. Uh, we're really honored to follow Roger Penske and have this tie in with the, the safety around the Indy 500. And our, our guests today, Dr. Terry Trammell and Dr. Steve Oldie, have spent many, many decades, we won't say how long, at the Speedway, which gives them a real perspective of the changes in, in safety and, uh, and I'd like them to talk about some of the uh, contributions they've made, uh, not only saving drivers life and limb uh, at the track, but the uh, facilities that they've helped improve, medical facilities at the track, the response teams, uh, follow up with drivers, recovery, and getting many of our heroes back in the cars and uh, driving in the sports they love. So I asked them here today to tell some stories um, about that and kind of cover the arc of, of that safety development. Uh, note over here, the, uh, that's the rapid response book uh, written by Dr. Oldie. And I think some of the stories you'll hear today are in that book. And there he's showing that. There's the book. And it's also been made into a great, a great documentary by, by uh, Michael Miles, uh, the documentary is also called Rapid Response and uh, has some great old time footage and great stories in it as well. And there's a second uh, documentary I'd recommend that is Yellow, 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 talks about the safety team at Indianapolis and uh, the work they do there. So uh, highly recommended from this end. And with that, I'd like to um, turn things over to Steve and Terry, and even I will uh, remain quiet here and let you guys carry on. Go ahead, please. Um, my first experience as a not fan in the stands at the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway happened in 1973. Um, I saw a sign, I was a medical student, I was a junior medical student, and there was a sign in the uh, student union building that you could sign up to work at the Speedway on the safety crew, and so I did and you sign up for two half-day sessions. So I showed up for my half-day session, and uh, the first thing I did is when I got there, I went to the infield care center and said, where am I supposed to be? And the, the person in there told me to go down to the 
to pit out um, on the track. So I did, and there was a vehicle that looked like a hearse with a ambulance uh, thing on top, think Ghostbusters. And uh, I asked where the doctor was. I had a little short white coat on that medical students wore. And the uh, guy looked at me and he said, that would be you, get in. And I thought, I can tell you what the Krebs cycle is. I know what DNA is a double helix, but I can't open a Band-Aid. What am I supposed to do here? And uh, he promptly told me that if the driver was seriously injured, we'd uh, go out to 16th Street, turn left and go to Methodist where they'd take care of him. And if he was fatally injured, we'd turn right and go to the funeral home in Speedway. Um, I did that two sessions, ended up at an infield care center on race day, um, which was not really the infield care center. It was a tent with an army nurse at the uh, exit to the tunnel between turns uh, three and four, uh, where everybody came into the speedway when they shot off a cannon at 6 a.m. And our first motorcycle out hit a policeman and injured the driver of the motorcycle. And that's how my day started. If you know about the 73 race, you know that it went on for days. Uh, there were fatalities. And the first day was the crash that soaked, uh, put fuel everywhere, burned spectators, so on and so forth. And I, uh, when I got through with that, I finally had to leave on the second day because I had to go back to school. I said, I'll be the last time I'll be doing this. Um, and that was how I got started. Did, uh, Steve, are you on? Can you talk? Hmm. I don't know how to help. I'll keep going. And then he can... So thinking that I was done with that, I from 74 to 79, I lived next door to a professional photographer that was at the Speedway often. And uh, I followed him around and actually was supposed to be on the racetrack uh, outside turn three, taking pictures in 1981. Um, senior partner informed me that, uh, did I know what, when I was on call uh, for emergencies? And I said, well, yes, of course, it's in my contract every holiday uh, for the first year. And he said, well, what it doesn't say is that race day is the holiday as well as Memorial Day. So you have a 48 hour stint uh, in the ER. So needless to say, I didn't show up at the track. However, they brought the track to me. That was the year that Dan Angaius crashed, uh, had devastating injuries to his leg and uh, conventional wisdom at the time was that that should have been amputated. Uh, there was bone loss, uh, vascular injury, and right in the middle of my dilemma, not wanting to have my first, this is my first year in practice, not having one, my first experience with the Speedway be to amputate a well-known driver's leg. I was wringing my hands when a young vascular surgeon walked in who had just got back from his third tour of duty in Vietnam. And he took one look at it and said, you make that thing hold still and I'll fix the artery and his leg will be fine. I said, I can do that. And we did, and he still has his leg and looks like it's not very pretty, won't win any beauty contests, but it works and he can feel it and still walking on it. Uh, that was my introduction to medicine at the Speedway and uh, would find out when I went back the next uh, season to get my credentials that my credentials were no longer in the credential office, but they were in the hospital. And that was the beginning of the long story. 
1984, I get this phone call from Steve on a Friday morning. I'm, I'm at work, the hospital actually was on the floor and uh, I'm on call. I mean, you know, I'm on call for the emergencies for 24 hours. And Steve says, there's been a horrible accident. Rick, Rick Mears is in a horrible accident in Montreal or outside Montreal at St. Pi. And uh, Roger Penske's plane is on its way to Indianapolis to pick you up, to bring you up here because they want to amputate his feet. And uh, I said, well, first of all, I can't go because I'm on call. And uh, I said, I don't have any privileges. I can't do anything when I get to Montreal except twiddle my thumbs. And Steve said, that's all taken care of, but you got to come. And I said, well, I can't. And he goes, well, you want to tell Mr. Penske that? And I was like, no, I'll get out of it. So I call my senior most partner and I tell him the story who happened to be a race fan and a golfer. And he said, very simply, you can go. I'll cover for you until 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. That's when my tea time is. If you're not back by the time I tee off, you're fired. Well, flew to Indianapolis, from Indianapolis and Penske's plane, went, went to Montreal, went to the hospital, uh, convinced them that we really didn't need to amputate his feet. And then if we could do a few simple things right there, which we did, uh, we packaged him up and fly him back to Indianapolis. And that was really the beginning of my tenure in motorsports medicine, uh, in spite of what had happened before then, because shortly thereafter, uh, Roger Penske um, arranged for me to attend the uh, race at Caesars Palace when we ran in Las Vegas uh, as his orthopedist. So he flew me out there in his plane, put me up with a fabulous uh, suite at Caesars Palace. And uh, it paid off because we sent one uh, of the series, latter series drivers who was a well-known attorney back to Los Angeles to a specialist because that's where he lived to get his heel fixed. And then they, uh, I flew home with Clive Howell to fix his uh, fractured tibia that got fractured when he got run over by the, uh, DJ Faze, the driver that was sitting in for Rick Mears. Uh, how are we going to get Steve on? <laughs> going to get tired of hearing me because there's no repartee. Um, Antlock, I keep going on the, on the show. The, the real science of motorsports started in 1992. Uh, Steve and I had, had written a couple of, of articles that were published in the medical literature. Uh, from 84 to 92 about uh, injury in motorsports. And in 92, um, as you know, the 92-500 was a, a lengthy um, exposure. It was very cold. We had lots of crashes. And uh, the um, there were multiple foot and ankle injuries. Piquet was injured in practice. Um, Mario Andretti broke a bunch of toes. Jeff Andretti had devastating injuries to both legs and ankles. and uh, we had several fractured femurs. It was just at one point we had 11 drivers in the hospital. And uh, it was one of these things. It's like, how on earth can we prevent these? Well, John Melvin and the General Motors Motorsports Technology Group stepped forward and said, hey, you know, we'll offer our resources to help you understand what's causing injuries and how we can change that. And uh, out of that came uh, changes in the cars, lengthening the front end, uh, not initially, but eventually adding a crushable structure to the nose. And the incidence of foot and ankle injuries plummeted from 92 forward. Whereas from 84 to really 81 to, to 92, they'd been the most frequent 
uh, non-life-threatening injury that occurred. In 99, we had a um, interesting experience. Um, Gonzalo Rodriguez pole vaulted off the track at Laguna Seca and the corkscrew and uh, was fatally injured. It was an injury that was later shown to be preventable with the Hans, which nobody knew really what that was at that point. Uh, it stood for head and neck support, something that Bob Hubbard and um, uh, his brother-in-law had developed that was, we had tried it once in an Indy car. We actually put Michael Andretti or tried to put Michael Andretti into a March chassis, but it just wouldn't fit. Uh, so we kind of abandoned that. Well, after Rodriguez was killed, um, Steve started working with Christian Fittipaldi to figure that if we could convince him that he could wear it in a car and, and could still see and move his head appropriately, but uh, reap its benefits that he would do that. Um, at the same time, my wife was running in the Barber Dodge Pro Series that CART had absorbed or became a sanction for, uh, for a few years. And because of that, I became the de facto medical director of uh, Barber Dodge. As a part of that, I just said, hey, you know, these kids have all got to get Hans and wear them and we'll supply them. And uh, Eve's helped us get enough of them at a reasonable price. That uh, and I will say I paid full price for my wife's. Um, the, anyway, she shows up. I said she had to wear it. She had to wear it, and she started wearing it. We we worked with some of the drivers. Ryan Hunter Ray was one of the first to embrace it and, and figure out how to use it. And as the Hans evolved, it evolved in IndyCar within the next year. And Steve made it mandatory on. Uh, um, ovals and then the following year on road courses. So by 2001, we were using it full time. Um, about that time, because of the things that we were doing, um, we got involved with the FIA. Uh, we had some experiences that led us to learn um, more things about how to travel and fly and so on and so forth in terms of drivers. We had the horrible accident with Alex Zanardi uh, in Germany in 2001 when he was uh, had above knee amputations. And Steve went out on a limb and said, we're not going to the local hospital and the local helicopter. We're going to take the local helicopter and go to Berlin. And as a consequence, it essentially saved his life. So things were uh, moving right along. And as a part of that backstory that I go back and try and fill in, at every step along the way, um, with the help of the General Motors Motorsports Technology Group, we were looking at things scientifically to see what we could do um, to change things in the car or for the driver to make it safer. And probably one of the early um, car changes that we were able to make of course, was the Hans and to incorporate the Hans into the car. Uh, during that period of time, the safer barrier was coming online and became a very important uh, part of the safety and, and injuries dramatically dropped when that was instituted across the, the board at all the ovals that we raced at. Um, as a part of, I was asked to be on this FIA advisory, expert advisory board by Sid Watkins in 2000. And a, a lot of things grew out of that. Unmute, unmute your. 
Do you see that? Do you see the message? Because yeah, now you can hear me. There you go. You're on. Thank you. I'm kind of jumping around. We're we were talking about the uh, early days and uh, some of the things. And one of the questions that came through on, on a chat was, "How did the drivers receive us when we started doing this?" You still there? Uh, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yes, we speak. I've, I've never had it on my uh, computer before, and I'm amazed that uh, I was able to get it on and everything's working. The phone's been beautiful with Zoom. I don't know what happened. Um, but anyway, we never had any, um, I don't remember any uh, backwash from the drivers at all. Uh, they were more than happy to have us involved. Um, we, they had so many bad experiences back in uh, before uh, I started doing uh, USAC and going to all the, uh, the tracks that they were just happy to think that somebody really cared about their welfare. And uh, it never, uh, never occurred to me. I, I can't remember one time that a driver said, we got to get rid of these guys. They're just in the way. Uh, it was uh, uh, really, uh, they're quite easy to work with. Hey, Steve. Uh, yeah. Terry, Terry told us about his first days at the Speedway. Can you tell us your experience of going there and how you got involved with the uh, Indy 500? Sure. I, my uh, first day was very similar to Terry's. I was put in an infield uh, tent that no part of the tent could you see the racetrack uh, from and took care of people that had uh, overindulged on one thing or another. Uh, but I hung with it and did that more and more and got to know Dr. Tom Hanna, who was the medical director of uh, the uh, uh, track. And he and I uh, really kind of hit it off and I began to work in the uh, medical care unit. And then one day he asked me if I wanted to work on the racetrack. And that was uh, pretty remarkable because up until that time, no doctor had worked on the racetrack when the cars were running. And so one day I was uh, put out there with the uh, ambulance, which was really a hearse uh, painted red and white. Uh, so it looked more like an ambulance. And we waited all day, nothing really happened. And so uh, I decided to get out of the ambulance and stretch myself. And as soon as I did, the yellow light came on and the big uh, air horn above us uh, blew. And uh, I realized I had a major decision to make and that was whether to get in the front or the back of the ambulance. And while I was deciding which uh, door to open, uh, the, ambulances was, uh, the ambulance was going rather rapidly out of the uh, pit area. So I was fortunate to get both of my hands on the rear door and it swung open as we pulled out into the second turn and I went with it. And then when we got in the short shoot, it slammed shut and threw me in the back of the ambulance. And I went the uh, tops over Kirby and hit the back door of the ambulance, cutting both of my elbows on the gurney uh, on my way by and started bleeding rather profusely. But fortunately uh, for me, uh, the incident was in the third turn and we got there uh, pretty quick really. And I got out of uh, the ambulance and I ran up to the car uh, the driver looked pretty good. I didn't know any of the drivers in. I ran up to the car and I said, are you okay? And the driver kind of folded his hands beneath his chin and he looked up at me and he says, well, I'm fine, but you look bloody awful. 
And uh, so I then realized uh, looking at his uniform, uh, which was covered with my uh, blood, that it was Graham Hill, uh, the uh, current world driving champion that uh, I was bleeding all over. Then uh, one thing uh, you know, led to another, I had more incidences and so forth. And, and three years later, uh, I was asked by the United States Auto Club if I would travel to the uh, different tracks and, uh, and watch over things because they were having so many uh, instances that uh, were, were bad. For uh, one time, Gordon Johncock was, uh, had a bad leg injury, was inside uh, the ambulance and the ambulance guy uh, forgot to lock the door, or shut the door uh, properly. And his uh, uh, cot that he was on, the gurney he was on, was not fastened properly. And so when the ambulance took off, Gordon went out the back door and onto the pavement uh, with a broken leg. And that was uh, visualized by a lot of people, including a lot of the drivers. And that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And uh, that's when uh, Dick King, who was head of USAC at that time, uh, made me medical director and I started going to uh, all the races. And it was uh, kind of an ethical issue uh, really because the other tracks, none of them did what Indianapolis did. And they really didn't seem to care about either the spectators or the participants. Uh, one of the medical directors I met was a retired OBGYN doctor. Another one was a retired ophthalmologist. Uh, one guy uh, was an alcoholic and by noon was drunk uh, all three days of the weekend. So these, these were really terrible things. And the, uh, uh, and the uh, safety uh, places, you know, the uh, medical centers or aid stations or whatever, uh, were more for picnicking and uh, socializing. And they really had no intention of taking care of anybody in those. If anybody had any injury whatsoever, uh, they would send them into town to uh, the major uh, hospital. And helicopters, forget it. Nobody wanted to pay uh, for a uh, medevac helicopter for a weekend. So they would have me uh, or us try to push or cram somebody into uh, a news media helicopter, which was uh, really pretty sad. And so these things, it took uh, a while to get uh, the sanctioning bodies uh, to uh, demand that these things would be fixed. And, but uh, both USAC and CART got on it. And uh, before too long, uh, we had everything at uh, all the tracks similar to uh, Indianapolis. At least they were satisfactory. Steve, go back to 84. Go back to 84 and fill in the blanks and the mirrors. And I told him how you coerced me into coming to Montreal, oh, okay. but I didn't tell him much the rest of the story. Okay, well, go, leaving the racetrack was uh, quite interesting because uh, I thought it'd be like every place else. Uh, Steve Edwards and I put Rick in the ambulance and uh, headed out. And the ambulance got to the main entrance of the speedway and just stopped and didn't move. There wasn't any traffic coming. He just and I couldn't get him to understand me because he only spoke French. And we were there long enough that Roger uh, Pinsky was able to get up to the ambulance and ask me what uh, I thought was wrong with Rick. 
And I said, well, get in. We're going to the hospital. Why don't you go in with me? And about that time, another car came up with uh, two guys that got out and came over to the ambulance. And it turned out that the driver inside the track could not drive on the highways outside the track. So the two new guys got in and we took off and drove about 12 miles and then came to a stop sign in the middle of nowhere and they stopped. And they started kind of joking around and talking and so forth. And they wouldn't talk to Roger and I at all. And we were getting pretty hot as you can imagine. And um, it was uh, at least 10 or 12 minutes. Another car came up, two more guys got out and it turns out that they were at some boundary uh, like a county, I don't know what they call them in uh, Canada, but it was like getting uh, the new guys could drive in the new county and the ones in the back couldn't. And so uh, we finally got to this uh, so-called hospital, which really wasn't a hospital at all. It was uh, kind of a first aid station with a little emergency area for lacerations, that kind of thing. And the only doctor in there had uh, Levi's, a flannel shirt, a long knife hanging from his belt, a uh, big bushy beard, and I said, uh, can you get me uh, your orthopedic uh, surgeon that's on call and your neurosurgeon? And he said, you got to be kidding. And those are his exact words. He said, we don't have any of that kind of thing. And I looked at Roger and I said, Roger, we need to get out of here, go to Montreal, we need a helicopter. And Roger, being the resourceful person he was, it wasn't five minutes, and a logging helicopter uh, landed across the street on the schoolyard so Roger and I had uh, the, the guy that was there wouldn't help us do anything. So uh, we got uh, Rick across the street in the helicopter. The helicopter had one seat. Next to it was a wooden box with two can open oil cans. And the back floor was an all wooden floor. So we laid Rick on the floor. I got to uh, put his IV up on a nail that was in the wood that was in the ceiling of the helicopter. And I sat down next to him and I was thinking probably the only time I've ever thought this, I said he was fortunate to be unconscious because he wouldn't remember any of this and I had to live through it. But uh, we uh, flew to the big trauma center in Montreal. And I don't know if you got into this story or not, but the, uh, the head orthopedic uh, surgeon was uh, quite a bit older now. He's probably in his mid fifties or late fifties. And he looked very doctory and he examined Rick in front of Roger and I, and he said, well, we're gonna to have to uh, amputate both of his legs uh, below the knee. And I looked at the uh, at Rick and I thought, uh, I'm just, I don't, I think we need a second opinion. And I told Roger, I said, Roger, we need a second opinion. I said, I know a guy in Indianapolis that I think is a terrific orthopedic surgeon and I'll get hold of him. And if we can figure out a way to get him up here. And Roger says, well, I'll send the plane, I'll send him now. And uh, he got on his uh, radio called the pilot and the plane was on its way to Indianapolis before I found you. And, and they the heard rest, the rest of history. Yeah, they heard the, heard the rest. They didn't hear the part about the next race after the uh, uh, Las Vegas race where I went in luxury and lived in luxury was at uh, somewhere I don't remember because now I was a cart employee in the back of the bus at the no-tell motel <laughs> and uh, from the rest of it was history from that point on. Some of the, the safety developments that have come along because of, of a real attention to um, detail and the collection of data, the, we've been very um, 
compulsive about collecting data from day one. So we've got data that goes back to the early 80s. The crash box came along that kind of functions like what's in an airplane so that we get chassis data. And then more recently, and more recently being about 96 or before, uh, the ear accelerometers so that we could get head Gs. And from that, we've been able to look at a lot of things with a, a scientific method. Um, and that has led, one of the things I'm proudest of is that in the uh, late 80s, our late mid 80s to late 90s, there were, was a uh, epidemic of spine fractures in open wheel race cars and uh, all, all around the world. It wasn't just here. But we recognized through a number of things and some serendipitous things that happened that we could change the way the driver sat in the car without changing where the driver sat in the car. And it had to do with making the seat back contoured uh, anatomically and, and containing. So it became a full containment seat with a head surround. And that was implemented of completely in the 2012 Delara chassis for IndyCar. It has padding in the floor of the car, padding in the rear of the seat that's built into the car. And uh, then we custom make each seat uh, out of material that's been carefully tested to take the energy. And the number of spine fractures has dropped dramatically. They're, they're quite different than what we were seeing prior to that. And from my standpoint, that's one of the most stepwise, um, scientifically driven um, in, improvements in IndyCar's driver safety. Uh, you can't stop without saying a little something about the AeroScreen Halo Hybrid, which certainly is all the things that have been said about it. Uh, and it has proven to be extremely beneficial. And we've had at least one case this year and any car where it protected a driver from being struck in the head. And then of course, if you saw yesterday's yeah. mm -hmm. uh, incident at Dubai, it uh, un undoubtedly saved the driver's head uh, in that incident as well. So we've come a long way since uh, chasing people around in chariot driven horses. I, I think uh, additional to that, and I don't know if you've talked about that or not, was uh, what we've done, uh, you and I have been able to do with concussion. And um, we got into what really causes a concussion, which is angular acceleration of the head. And we started uh, getting very aggressive with the head surround. And it got it closer and closer and closer to the driver. And just to make a long story short, the drivers now have to kind of push themselves back into the car. And uh, they're really nestled into the head surround. So they're uh, head does not turn, it goes the same long axis as the car. It doesn't bounce around and turn like it did in the old days. And uh, since doing that, the number of concussions has uh, dropped tremendously. I think in the last three years, we've had one concussion. And uh, the uh, uh, we used to have uh, several a year, really not a huge amount, but uh, a lot more than that. And uh, it's... Uh, uh, it's been terrific. And the worst, worst concussion we had was Dario Franchitti. And what happened with him is he went up in the air, the car turned around three and a half rotations uh, in a second and a half. And it was uh, the worst concussion he had. He was unconscious for four or five minutes. He had uh, post-concussion symptoms for four months. 
and uh, decided to, uh, because of previous concussions and so forth, to retire as a, a professional driver. And uh, I think that pretty much proves uh, what it is we've been trying to show people. Don't know where to go from here. <laughs> I mean, there are anecdote after anecdote, but the real story is, is that it's been a stepwise progression. And there have been a lot of people along the way that have made, made things happen. My um, associate at IndyCar for years was Jeff Horton. And I would go to him and say, okay, I've got, you can see what the circumstances here because we were hand in glove. And I need this information to be able to go forward. And from the engineering side, he would produce it because I have an engineering background. I could understand it. And really, when you think about it, Peaks is just mechanical engineering. Um, we use drills and hammers and screws and so on and so forth. So it's sort of like bridge building 900. But um, there was a, a lot of interplay between different parties. The, the teams have all been incredibly willing to let us learn from them. I mean, one in, one in particular I can call uh, Ganassi's outfit and, and uh, say, I have a problem. Can I come to the shop? And they'd say, yeah, sure. Get in the car and come right over. We're there. Barry Wanzer is like the door is always open. And before him, um, Mike Hall, it, it's been, been just a steady stream of if you need us, help us. And that interplay has been very important both for the driver's safety, but actually some of my patients have benefited directly from race shops building things for me to use on my patients. So uh, the FDA will probably be at my door in the morning, but other than that, um, there've been a lot. Steve, if somebody wants to hear about Alex, we've got about two minutes left. You wanna go from the scene to the helicopter? I didn't really talk about that much. The oh yes, uh, taking, uh, when Terry brought uh, Alex into where the heliport was. I didn't want him to go into the uh, care center because that was an unnecessary transfer of him. And uh, it would take time that we needed to do anything we needed to do right there at the heliport. And uh, so we, we did. And uh, we had to, uh, we started three IVs. He lost uh, over three fourths of his blood supply in that period of time. So he needed a lot of fluid. His heart rate was very rapid. And uh, we're about ready to put him in the helicopter. He went into VFib, uh, VT and then VFib. And we had, uh, he had to be shocked and we had to do CPR. And uh, that, uh, that was uh, probably, the, that, that was the most scary thing. Uh, with the fluid, he uh, straightened out and became uh, sinus tachycardic. And we got him in the uh, uh, helicopter and uh, we had, uh, I don't know if you talked about this, but we had, uh, in, you know, there's the golden hour they talk about in trauma. And uh, the safety guys got to uh, Alex in 19 seconds. And uh, it's a 35 minute flight to uh, uh, Berlin. And when uh, the helicopter left, I, I of course, was uh, sweating bullets over the fact that we I didn't swim to Dresden. Uh, so all I could do was go into the office and wait for a phone call. And uh, it was about 45 minutes. I got a call from the uh, chief uh, trauma guy at the hospital in uh, Berlin. And he said, well, he made it. And we just, 
Uh, he's in surgery. Uh, he went straight. The amazing thing to me compared to what would happen in, in, in the uh, United States is he went from a helicopter into the OR because I had talked to them before I sent him and I told them what we, uh, he needed and he needed to not pass and go and not go in the emergency room but go directly from the helicopter into the operating room. And that's what he did. So the total time uh, from the time of the crash to the time he uh, got uh, under surgery was 59 minutes. So we had a minute to spare with the uh, golden hour. But uh, it's remarkable that all the things that had to be done got done and he got uh, the uh, operating uh, suite open when he arrived there and, and got taken care of. Some of, the, you know, some of the things that we're working on right now, you know, what's the next step? As, as Steve said, we're really into the concussion business, um, trying to learn more about it. The more we learn, the less we know. Um, and then also some of the things that, that I'm doing besides the concussion thing is I'm, I have a uh, crusade, I guess, that it's really important that the drivers buy into all this and that they understand their responsibility for um, what I call um, personal protective equipment and environment. They need to know um, what to buy, uh, why to buy it, how to wear it when it comes to underwear and, and overalls and gloves and socks and so on and so forth. There actually is a correct way to do that. And then um, their environment, when they get in a car they have to understand what it is in that environment that can hurt them in a, in a simple crash, a, a, not a destroy the car crash. And it's incredibly important that that message get out to the driver. And that's my crusade for the present. I would second that. It wants to know how much it can cost. Let me put it this way. You can buy the very best and most expensive racing helmet, fire suit, all the overalls, the shoes, the socks, and it's gonna be less than one visit to the ER. And that's your copay. So <laughs> that's if you have insurance, which you don't if you're involved in a contest of speed most of the time. Uh, and I'm yeah. talking about the grassroots. So you can't afford not to do this. Um, buy at least the best you can afford, but don't skimp. And that's uh, uh, to make uh, matters worse. One day in the ICU in Miami uh, on a ventilator is $7,500. So that adds up pretty quick if you're in the hospital for three weeks. So back to you, Don, we're done. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Um, I know you got so, so many so many stories also in uh, with the racing from the seventies in, in Formula One and so many friends die. You know we we all have a lot of story. You know it's uh, give us sometimes bad time like like you and but big improvement in the last fifty years. Big improvement. And even fifty years, you've seen a lot of improvements yourself, so um, and and help. Look at that how many friends, how many Formula drivers get the, the, the legs broken with the, with the car, you know? 
how many get in a fire? Remember Wilkinson, Loda, all these people, you know? And uh, it's incredible how it's different. You know, uh, with Jacques Lafitte and Anna Prost, I remember the, the, when we lost uh, Gilles Villeneuve in Zolder, you know, it's, it was, it was, and without medical like you, without uh, the, the big, uh, like Indy, IndyCar on Formula One, nobody will improve all that. Thank you. Thank you for what you did. Thank you to also like uh, Steve and, and Terry. I know very well that you were searching to go more, not just to, to, to do, to save, to, to save the guy. You were searching for what next. Thank you for the hands for all that. Thank you. All right. And thank you. Thank you, Steve, Terry, Eve. Thanks for joining us. Um, Our pleasure. I will, I will once more, I will once more, <laughs> Terry, go ahead. No, I said, thanks for having us. It was our pleasure. It was great. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, one, once more, once more before Francis cuts me off, um, I'd like to mention the, the book, the, uh, the two documentaries. I saw they are on uh, Amazon Prime, if you want to look for them. And uh, at this point, I will turn it back to Francis. Thank you very much for the time, Francis, and making us the uh, kickoff kickoff webinar of your race industry week. Of course, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Trammell. Thank you, Dr. Olvi. Uh, merci, Ivan Romain, for being with us today. What a great way, you know, to, to start the week. Registering on ePartrade is easy. Fill out your name, email, phone number, and create a secure password. Next, select your business type. Choose supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose racing business if you're looking to find new parts and connect with suppliers. Choose race team if you own or are a member of a professional racing team. Begin typing your company name. We most likely already have your company in our database, which you can select from the drop-down. Then, enter your job title. Choose Claim Company if you'll be editing your company profile. Other members of your company can choose Join Company if they'd like to use ePartrade as well. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. Click Register Now and your registration will be submitted for approval. You'll need to confirm your email once it goes through. To keep our platform industry only, you'll be approved shortly after. If we require additional proof of business, we'll reach out. Welcome to ePartrade.